Hey everybody, welcome to episode 23 in honor of Michael Jordan. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. No, I'm just kidding. Welcome to episode 23 of Coffee Talks with Mike. Hope you're doing well today, wherever you find yourself. Um, it is a very overcast day over here. 40 degrees, chilly, breezy, no sun. So it's like a nice, sad fall day. But it's kind of relaxing, so uh, I'm okay with it. few updates for me um, that you might care about. One, I'm seriously toying with the idea of running the Pittsburgh Marathon on May 1st. So pray for me as I try to figure that out. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so fixated on wanting to do that, but for some reason, I just keep coming back to it. So maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, but that's something I'm toying around with. Two, middle schoolers are the most brutal, brutal demographic of humans making fun of you. Um, youth group was really funny, uh, really enjoyable for me on Sunday. But in, in the midst of having all that fun, man, middle schoolers just rip you for all kinds of reasons. And one funny moment related to the podcast is that one of these sixth grade students pulled up their Spotify to show me a song and they went, oh, look, your podcast, Coffee Talks with Mike. And I went, you listen to my podcast? I went, no, this is my mom's Spotify. I would never listen to that. <laughs> I went from really intrigued and flattered to, uh, yeah, that checks out. So um, a little slice of humble pie there, um, but that's what I deal with week to week. Uh, yeah. So, and then last update is that I actually was able to preach on Sunday, which was really enjoyable. And uh, it's pretty cool because my sister Katie was in town visiting. So that just kind of worked out perfectly. But uh, something I want to start doing, uh, which will be the topic of today's episode, is doing like mini talkbacks for sermons that I'm preaching. Not to be self-promoting, but I mean, I guess you are already listening to my podcast. So there's that. But something I've talked to a lot of people about, but definitely people in ministries, the fact that when you're preparing a sermon, like you put hours and hours into it and you consult a lot of ideas, a lot of sources, but frankly, you have to let a lot of that stuff go for the final product. Hate talking about sermons in relation to product language, but I think you know what I mean. Um, but ultimately it's like, man, there's a lot of of ideas, a lot of thought that goes into it. And you just frankly can't say it all from the pulpit because you'd be there forever. So my thought is that I'll start doing some mini sermon talkbacks. So it might be worth checking out that sermon. If you're interested in that, you can uh, go to my website, mikekramer.wordpress.com, and you can find them there. Um, but even without that, you can just listen to this or you can skip it, whatever you want. But with all that being said, my sermon on Sunday was titled Wondering, Wandering. And it was on uh, the passage Deuteronomy 1, 19 through 36. So the broader context of our church right now is that we're doing a large uh, sermon series all, pro all of the program year. And what we're doing is going through what's called the story. And we're adapting this from uh, a general church curriculum because uh, curriculums are typically not great on their own. They're only good if you adapt them. But the goal is to go through the overarching plot points of the story of scripture 
all throughout the year. Now I could do a whole episode on just that topic alone and maybe I will, but just for today, I'll just give some kind of extended conversation or monologuing about the sermon itself. And so the, the, the gist of the sermon is dealing with this text from Deuteronomy chapter one. And if you're not aware of Deuteronomy in general, um, here are some things to think about. So uh, the first five books of the Bible are called a number of things, but two of the more popular names for it is the Torah and the Pentateuch. Now, the Old Testament as an entire collection is known as the Tanakh, T-N-K in Hebrew, T-N-K, even though, you know, those aren't the Hebrew letters. Um, And then in Hebrew, since there's no vowels, we insert the vowels later for pronunciation's sake, uh, we just add an A in between both of those sets of consonants. So Tanakh. So the T stands for Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. The Nevi'im is the second selection of books, um, which is like the uh, history books, some of the prophetic writings, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Kethuvim for the K, and that's just other writings. That'll include Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, a lot of that wisdom literature, and some other stuff. Um, So the Torah, the T in Tanakh, or the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five, um, those first five books of the Bible are the most important stretch of the Old Testament. And I know it's weird to like rank importance of the Old Testament or the Bible in general, but when it comes to how we understand the story of Scripture, the Torah is the most important. Everything after Torah, everything after Deuteronomy, the last book in the Torah, is commentary on the Torah. So think about like what comes next, Joshua. So Deuteronomy ends with Israel at the foot of the promised land, right? And and it ends with Moses dying on a hill, watching Israel go into the promised land, essentially. Joshua picks up in Joshua 1 with conquering the promised land and living into that lifestyle. All the stuff that's come up to this point, Israel, uh, I mean, all of Genesis, but Exodus in particular, There's slavery in Egypt. There's liberation from Egypt. They leave. They go into the wilderness. They get the Ten Commandments. This is where God reveals himself for the first time by name to Moses, right? Burning bush, I am that I am. Um, This is where we get the title Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It's also where we get the word Jehovah because of German translation, et cetera, et cetera. But all that's connected. So God is now first introducing the personal name of of this of of Israel's God, and that's really important. Um, separating God away from all of the other cultural understandings of deities, no, and so no, God is different. So that that's where we get these ten commandments, right? That we go up, or Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to receive after leaving Egypt. These ten commandments are telling the people what it means to live under this God. Now, there's an interesting parallel here because remember, the first time Moses goes up to meet God at the top of the mountain, what's happening at the bottom of the mountain? The Israelites are so stoked about what just happened that they're like, Aaron, you know, the spokesperson for Moses or one of the other leaders, Aaron, like, who do we worship? Like, we have to worship the God that liberated us and they decide to create an idol or a statue of a golden calf. You know, it's very common culturally um, for a lot, a lot of reasons that um, 
I probably won't get into today, but in general, that it's not as absurd as maybe we think it is. Oh, wow, golden cow, that's really uh lame. Like, no, like they're trying to to direct their worship towards something because they know that this was a higher power that got them through this situation. Now, as a result, uh, Moses comes down and he's really angry and pissed off. And he says, uh, what are you doing? He breaks the Ten Commandments and goes back up and and then goes through the whole set of motions again. Right. So there's an interesting parallel in the book of Acts. And I can't remember the exact reference off the top of my head. Um, let me Google it real quick because technology. Um, but Paul stumbles upon, uh, this is chapter 17. There we go. And he's having, he gives his speech and he talks about these different monuments made to different gods in this town that he's in. And then he gets to a statue of the, and it's titled the unnamed God or the unknown God. And he uses that as the opportunity to say, Hey, this God that you've been worshiping as this awesome power, this is the God of Israel that you've already been worshiping. You just didn't even know it. But here's the thing. This God is above all other gods. This is the true God, et cetera, et cetera. So there's this interesting parallel, at least in my eyes, that you know you can see both situations. It's not that people didn't think that there was this higher power or this divine presence that needed to be acknowledged and worshiped and valued, but rather they didn't know how to name it. So what happens? Moses names it. <laughs> they get the Ten Commandments, which you know are not completely unique to Israel. Um, sure, there is some language in particular about have no other gods before me, but there's nothing in the Ten Commandments that like is particularly, you know, outstanding in in some crazy regard. You know what I mean? There, not many of those val those things are values that are like Christian specific. If you think about it, like they are the laws for what it means to be a good community of what it means to live together in harmony. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill each other. Don't envy. Honor your father and your mother. Like these are things that are not outlandish requests. And yet these are the bedrock of what it means to be community. And Israel's learning that. Um, there, there are some ancient historians that connect a lot of that to earlier texts and things like Hammurabi's law and others. Uh, you can do some of the homework there if you'd like. But in general, it's important to note that the Ten Commandments by themselves are not some crazy, you know, list of things that are really impossible to do. And yet we still fail to, uh, to live those out well. Then you've got Leviticus, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And Leviticus kind of expands the understanding of what it means to live as community, and more specifically, as the people of Yahweh, the people of this particular God. Um, remember, we've already seen a cultural shift at this point in the story, right? That God is not like the other gods. You got it. One of the clearest examples with Abraham and Isaac going up, and Abraham is ready to sacrifice Isaac. Has anyone ever wondered why was Abraham ever really prepared to do that? And are we okay with that? And are we okay with God testing Abraham in this sense? And does God test us? Does, does God trick us? Like there's all kinds of stuff to unravel there. But an important piece is to remember Abraham didn't wake up one day and was magically a, a child of Yahweh and was aware of that 
um, his whole life, he was called out of his previous land and country and culture and religious understanding of the world to create a new nation, right? So Abraham was already familiar with deities that required child sacrifice. This is a really important point in the history of Israel, because here in, well, that's in Genesis, God stops that from happening and says, that's not what, what we are all about. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. Now we can talk about Isaac. How young was Isaac? Was Isaac a really small child? Was Isaac, you know, 20? Like, we don't know um, his willingness to trust his father, his willingness to to sit there. There's interesting art all throughout history pointing to how Isaac received that situation. Was he hysterical and crying and, and resisting? Was he somber and ready to, to meet his fate? Uh, there are a lot of ways you can read that text, but the important point being that God was showing in that moment, no, like this is what other deities have required. This is not what it means to be a child of Yahweh. And later in Israel's history, guess what they bring back? Child sacrifice. Why? Because they are uh, intermingling the religious practices of Israel and, and following Yahweh with other surrounding cultural religions. Um, which creates some really big problems, particularly in the Northern Kingdom. Now, all of this is building up towards Deuteronomy. So Leviticus, again, is expanding those laws, expanding what it means to be pure versus impure. Now, it's important, again, purity does not necessitate the understanding that we are sinful. Impure does not mean sin necessarily, though those things can be in the same area. You are impure and need to purify. Handling dead bodies makes you impure and you need to clean yourself. Um, there's a lot of language about this in the New Testament. This is where we get some of our theology around baptism, um, which comes from the word baptizo. Um, I baptize, the verbal form, uh, present verbal form rather. Um, and there are debates. Does it mean to sprinkle? Does it mean to pour? Does it mean to dunk or, or submerge? Obviously, in a Baptist perspective, they interpret that as a full submersion in water. Interestingly, uh, in the texts around like the disciples and things that defile them, and the Pharisees are upset that the, the disciples are not baptizoing themselves, their hands in particular, for cleaning before eating right? Interesting. Are we fully submerging an entire body? Are we submerging a piece? Or, you know, there's a lot of semantic range in that word when it comes to pouring water. Um, so anyways, that's just some fun uh, etymology there for you a little bit. But um, same kind of thing. In the Old Testament, when we're talking about purity, sometimes purity literally just meant, hey, you touch something dirty and you need to clean yourself. And no, they didn't have 17 gallons of hand sanitizer or soap that they could access. Sometimes cleaning themselves just meant rinsing seven times, um, uh, as we see in different stories with uh, maybe the leper being healed in the Old Testament and things like that. So Leviticus, by and large, the, the short summary is extra laws that help clarify what does it mean to be the people of God how to live in that community. Numbers is exactly what you think it's about. It's about numbers. There's a lot of numbers, but numbers and Deuteronomy together are kind of retelling the story thus far. They're kind of pointing to what's already happened 
and and why it's happened. So uh, in Deuteronomy one, which is the text that I preached on on Sunday, the focus that I kind of well, maybe I'll just start at the very beginning because I started at verse 19 for my sermon. Basically, it's Moses teaching all these things, speaking all these rules to the Israelites. And they're talking about their time wandering through the wilderness after defeating the king of the Amorites and defeating this other group and saying, it's time to move into the land that I promised you. Now, Moses, this is when he talks about appointing the 12 leaders of the tribes one from each tribe because he can't command everyone himself. And then he kind of talks about the hierarchical leading beyond that and says, you know, each of them will have 50 people and each of them will have another group of 10, et cetera, et cetera. But then verse 19 is the pickup in chapter one of Deuteronomy of refusing to enter the land. So they send the spies in and they say, hey, the land is really good, but there's some really, really, really capable armies living there. And the Israelites respond by saying, God must hate us. And that's why he's brought us out of Egypt to kill us in the land of the Amorites or kill us by the hand rather of the Amorites. And so Moses is kind of rebuking them and God is rebuking them saying, why, why would you think this? And as a result of your disobedience, like you, none of you are going to enter the promised land, only Caleb and his descendants. Um, because they were willing to go into the land. Now, up to this point, a number of things have happened. Moses is no longer going to the promised land because of his anger. Um, there's a number of ways to interpret this passage too, where Israel wanted, they basically just kept complaining uh, to Moses about all the things he was doing wrong and they wanted water and he strikes the rock. Now, earlier in the story, God commanded Moses to strike the rock and send out sweet water, basically drinkable water. But at this point, Moses circumnavigates and he hits the rock out of anger. And some uh, some people would interpret that as he tried to get the water himself rather than with God. Or maybe it's because he's just so angry that God's punishing him. However you want to interpret that passage, Moses is not able to go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy as a book, we're only in chapter one here. Um, that I was focusing on the sermon. Um, but at the end of the book kind of talks about Moses that like everyone moving forward, but Moses climbing up this mountain uh, or this hill rather to see the promised land from afar and presumably watch them try to go into it. Now, my sermon was titled Wondering and Wandering. And my point being that uh, there's this, you know, very popularized phrase, not all who wander are lost. And it, you know, being in the backpacking community, whatever that means, but liking hiking, liking, you know, places like REI, LL Bean, et cetera, outdoorsy places. This is on stickers. This is on t-shirts. These are on patches. Not all who wander are lost or let's get lost. And, you know, I kind of make the joke, like I am not good with directions. I am, I get lost all the time hiking, which is kind of embarrassing because between the trailblazes that clearly mark more than often than not where you're supposed to go and the apps, like all trails that tell you literally where you're supposed to go. Um, it's kind of impressive that you can get lost, but I do. So not all who wander are lost, but some of us wander because we really are lost. Um, I laugh because my dad, who I know is going to listen to this at some point and he'll get a kick out of this. Well, 
in general to back up, I think it's interesting that like nowadays, I don't even think twice about using my GPS because uh, I pay for unlimited data because I know how much I need to use data for things like GPS because I know how bad I am with directions. It's it's a no brainer for me. But I, I was thinking about it like even 10 years ago, like people, it was not normalized for everyone to use GPS on their phones because of how expensive data is. And so it's like, okay, like, what do you do then? Like, okay, maybe you download the map um, or the directions beforehand on Wi-Fi and then you've got it where you screenshot like the directions. But I remember as a kid, we used to use MapQuest, which was exactly what it is now or like Google Maps. You do it on your computer and you can print out the stuff and then take it with you in the car. And you're literally trying to measure, okay, in 7.3 miles, you turn right. So now you're using the, the mile gauge on your car that you have to push in um, to try and figure out where am I supposed to go? Like, it, it's kind of crazy that that's, that was the normal way of traveling. And there was nothing more stressful than as a kid being given the task of printing out the map quest, um, let alone because, you know, using a printer at home, I think every human being that owns a printer has broken their printer at home. I don't know how we're sending billionaires to space, but printers are still one of the most difficult pieces of equipment to operate. But that's where we are. That's where we are. Now, before MapQuest, I remember in my dad's Explorer growing up, he would have like this giant, it had to be like at least two to three feet, probably two feet tall. I don't want to exaggerate too much two feet by maybe one and a half feet, um, these giant atlases of different important places. So like he'd have one on Delaware, one on Pennsylvania, or maybe it was just the tri-state area. And he'd pull out the atlas and be like, all right, now I got to take this road across. And when he was first visiting me out here in, in Pittsburgh, he started on the GPS and was taking it. And he's like, yeah, then I stopped on, on at a rest stop. And I got a, I asked him for an atlas. This is a couple of years ago. Now he's like, yeah, I came up this cool way. Cause I was here. And then I came up through here and I was like, yeah, that is cool. But it took you seven and a half hours to get here. It should have taken you six. Well, you know, uh, it's like, dude, just use the GPS. It tells you where to go, how fast to go. It tells you about the accidents on the road. It tells you all the things you need. Well, you know, but the Atlas, it, okay, you're right. And that's usually how those kinds of conversations go. Because sometimes, like, it's cool to find a new way to do the thing. But sometimes it's like, no, you're just getting lost. Like, just stop complicating the thing. Just go do it. I know he's listening right now. Like, I can't believe you just told that story. But something tells me it's not unique to me and my dad when it comes to directions, to GPS, to using physical maps. Um, that's just how it goes. Now, again, not all who wander are lost, right? Uh, and that's a really cute thing. Like sometimes wandering is about exploring. And, and that's really fun when it's planned. It's kind of like... Like I like to think of myself as a flexible person when it comes to like changing plans. But in reality, like I like to be flexible when I've planned to be flexible. You know what I mean? Like, like I, there are times when it's like, yeah, who knows what we're going to do? But I've decided in my brain who knows what we're going to do. So it's okay if we do nothing. But if you tell me we're going to meet at this location at 9 a.m., which means I've got to wake up earlier, get showered, get ready to go, and I get to the place at 9 a.m., and you text me and you're like, hey, actually, change of plans. 
let's meet at 945. Well, now I'm stuck for 45 minutes and I'm really annoyed. Or maybe we planned to go see a movie and then we didn't get the tickets in advance because you forgot to and we get there and then it turns out that the movie is actually sold out. Now we have to make new plans. I'm annoyed. It's not that it's like, oh, man, Mike isn't flexible enough. It's like, well, maybe that's part of it. But no, let's let's live out the plans that we kind of said were our plans. You know what I mean? And so in the same way, I like to wander when I plan to wander. You don't want to wander when you're low on water and food. You don't want to wander when there's like a torrential downpour coming. You don't want to wander when you're not really sure where you are. Wandering is not always fun. Um, so not all who wander are lost, but some of us that are wandering are lost and are like really stressed. I actually just saw this story pop up that this guy that was lost hiking, this is like this week. Um, so week of uh, October 25th, um, this guy that was lost, the rescuers were trying to call him to find him and like give him help. Um, but he kept ignoring their calls for like a day or two because it was from a no caller ID. And so they finally got a hold of him because he was like, why is this number keep calling me? And it's like, we're the rescuers trying to help you, dude. But that is how uh, calloused we are all to scam calls that we're like, no, no way I'm not answering that call. But again, not all who wander are lost. And so as I was writing my sermon and trying to think through some of these big picture ideas in the story, the wilderness time for Israel is one of the most important parts of the story of scripture wilderness remember like i mean it depends on how far you want to go with this imagery but this this imagery is really important um the first scene we get of humanity is in a garden and they're expelled from a garden into the wilderness into this outer land into this place they're not supposed to be israel's called into this beautiful new land this metaphorical garden and they choose a wilderness instead why? Because there was this new hurdle. Um, later, when Jesus comes on the scene, he gets baptized and goes where? Into the wilderness. But he's, he's showing us a new path. Adam was expelled into the wilderness because of his sin. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness and doesn't sin. Right? There, there's like these twists, these subtle twists on these themes and these images and these locations that are really important. And later... Uh, I mean, we're, we're looking at like kind of ground changing when Jesus dies. Uh, he is resurrected in a garden. His tomb is a garden. So it's changing uh, or flipping on its head. How, how the span of life is supposed to go death, destruction, failure. It's like, no resurrection, rebirth, uh, rebuilding. And so Israel's time in the wilderness here is difficult. So, Israel travels through the wilderness, gets to the foot of the promised land and says, nope, we don't want to go in and then go back into the wilderness for 40 years, right? So they came through wilderness. They came through the struggle because struggle is part of the story, part of all of our stories. Struggle is what helps us get to where we're supposed to go. It helps us learn things. It helps us grow. I don't want to glorify suffering. That's different. But there is something about that process that enables us to see things in a new way. But the end is where we're aiming. And the end was promised land. The end was the garden. The end was not more wilderness 
But Israel chose to go back into the wilderness, back into suffering, back into wondering where your next meal comes from. And that's the choice they made because they didn't want to go and face the Amorites. They didn't want to go and have another battle because they looked intimidating. They had an army that looked more uh, equipped than Israel's army. And Moses is like mad. He's like, the God who's gotten you through all of this stuff up to this point brought you out of Egypt, brought you through the wilderness, and you think he's not going to bring you through this too? Are you crazy? And so as a result, um, Israel begins their wandering. And to me, like that is the difference, right? Not all who wander are lost. Um, and that that is a cute sentiment or like a fun one that we put on shirts. And it can also have negative connotation. Sometimes we wander in our lives because we know exactly what we have to do or we're supposed to do and we choose not to because we don't want to. Um, in this case, we know what God is saying and we don't like it. So instead of actually doing that thing, we're going to wander around instead because we don't want to actually go to it. it. There's nothing worse than when you're having a hard conversation with someone and they just keep talking around the issue rather than just saying the thing. And then they get offended if you say, just say what you want to say. You're like, no, no, I'm talking. I'm doing the thing. It's like, no, you're not. Just say it. Just do it. Just embrace it so that we can move forward. But when you talk around it forever, you're never going to make progress. And when you, instead of actually, you know, to go back to the hiking metaphor with me, sometimes you get to the like two thirds of the way through a hike and you've got a really big climb ahead of you and you just don't want to do it anymore. And you start to trick yourself into thinking there are other ways to go. It's like, no, no, no. Like, that's where you have to go. You can sit here and rest up. You can wander around and pretend like you don't know you need to climb, but you got to go up. Up is up. And so you have to get up the mountain. You've got to go to that next thing. And in our spiritual lives, we often wander around things a lot because we know what we're supposed to do. We just don't want to do it. Now, I don't want to take away from the fact that we often don't know what we're supposed to do. We wonder what's coming next and wonder it can be beautiful and terrifying all at once, or it can just be terrifying. And that's way worse, right? So wondering is like, you know, oh, I was wondering what we might eat for dinner. Yeah, there's something there. But like to be like to experience wonder, to be in awe of something is because you don't fully understand it. It's something beyond what your your rational mind can can comprehend. And so often maybe we'll talk about like, man, I wonder what God has in store for us. I wonder where God is calling me. I wonder, you know, what job I should go to next. I wonder if my family will X. I wonder if I wonder. And that is a very important part of our lives. You can't escape wonder. Now, wonder can, can generate fear and anxiety. It can also generate humility and passion. Because at the end of the day, we're all terrified of like things changing. We, we crave comfort. Even the people that say they don't crave comfort, they, they do. Like human beings crave the past path of least resistance. That's just how we are. And so as a result, like when you have to keep wondering what's coming next, 
whether it's where your next meal comes next for those that are in that situation, or you're wondering what your next job is going to be, or you're wondering how you'll pay for your next bill, or you're wondering if you're ever going to meet someone, or you just go down this list, it can be really, really tiring. And that's something that like we can't pretend doesn't exist. It's an exhausting part of our existence um, as human beings and as followers of God. And yet, at the same time, if we allow ourselves to experience wonder with a fuller capacity of hope and vulnerability, like wonder can be an act of faith. It's like, yeah, I have no idea what's coming next. And yet, I trust that the God that has already gotten me up to this moment in my life is going to get me through the next moment too. Um, one of my sermons, uh, maybe over a year and a half ago at this point, um, I quoted uh, Frozen 2. If you haven't seen it, um, I thought it was a pretty good uh, sequel for, as far as Disney movies go. But there's this really dark moment in, in the story, and I won't spoil anything for all my Disney friends, but there's a song, and it's kind of like a song of lament, of suffering, of all the struggle. And the refrain is, you know, what do you do when you don't know what you're supposed to do? You do the next right thing. And I kind of focused on that in light of, uh, I think, the book of Esther, um, Esther and Mordecai and all that. If I perish, I perish. And yet this is also what happens with wonder. When you are spiraling in that place of not knowing what comes next, That that is a universal human experience. And the most important thing you can do is the next right thing in a given moment. And you're going to mess up. You're going to misinterpret the next right thing. And that's okay. Like, you're going to get through that, too. But we start to think so big, like high schoolers always go, oh, what college am I going to go to? If I choose the wrong college, my whole life's going to be thrown off. Like, what's the college God wants me to go to? Because if I if I go to the wrong one, he'll be mad at me. And it's like, no, 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 just just try to do the next right thing. Yeah, plan 10 steps ahead, but recognize by step three, you're probably making a new plan. That's what it means to learn how to be in wonder and be flexible. Now, wonder is good, but when you wander, when you're wandering because you're not wondering, when you're no longer wondering what you need to do, but you don't want to do it, so you start to wander, that's no good. Personally, I'm someone that struggles a lot with like slothfulness as a sin, and we often think of sloth as like the animal of the sloth, but like historically, um, in the Christian tradition, sloth is much more than just physiological. It's not just like, oh, you eat sweets and you don't do stuff. Um, therefore you're slothful. It's no, like you are avoiding the things you know you're supposed to do. You're avoiding the thing that you know that you are being called to. That's what wandering can become. It's a slothfulness fundamentally because you're avoiding the places that you know you have responsibility. Sometimes like I wander instead of responding to an email because the idea of responding to the email generates anxiety. It makes me really tired. It's something I don't want to do and I'll stress about it for hours. And then I finally sit down to do it. It takes me 10 minutes or less. And I'm like, wow, I feel so much better. I should have just done this thing hours ago. And then I wouldn't have been stressed for hours about this simple task that wasn't fun but it was important for me to move forward. That's a simple example of sloth. Sloth is sometimes avoiding the relational things in our lives. 
It's avoiding making things right with someone, even if they're not trying to make things right with you. Often, like forgiveness um, is not about you both reaching that point. Forgiveness is often a heart problem on one side. It, it really doesn't matter too much if the other person meets you in that forgiveness. And I don't mean, you know, that's a fickle line to, to tread because you can often try to, you know, make it into a pride thing. Like, well, I was ready to forgive you, but you didn't forgive me. It's like, no, 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 you're already twisting this thing. What I mean is our mentality behind forgiveness is really important because it really shouldn't matter if that other person is ready to be forgiven or thinks they need to be forgiven. It matters if you actually forgive them. It matters if you have genuinely gotten to a point where it doesn't matter what they say about it, that you have let go of that thing. That's heart work. And that is hard. It's exhausting. It's not easy. And it never gets easier. It just doesn't. Yet that's what we're called to do. Forgive our debts, forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who have debts toward us or trespass against us. The most fundamental, crucial part of the Lord's Prayer, and we pretend like it's not there. <laughs> forgive us as we forgive. It's an ongoing thing, but we are often slothful in the process of forgiveness. We often wander around forgiveness because we don't want to climb that mountain. We don't want to seize that land. Wandering can be the most detrimental thing to our lives. Not because it's not fun to explore, but it's because exploring only gets you so far. Walking around a thing can be good to get a new angle of the thing and to get a new perspective. At the end of the day, if you're trying to climb the mountain, if you're trying to finish this trail, if you're trying to move forward and prog progress, eventually you have to actually do it. You can't just wander. And in this story, Israel chose the wilderness over God's will. And I think often in our lives, we choose a kind of wilderness over what we know God's calling us to. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of things up in the air, plenty of things in the ether that I can't put words to that, that give me fear and anxiety on some level, but it's in a state of wonder, hopefully, like when I can reorient it. Yeah. I don't know what comes next. And yet I can kind of be excited. Like you can be scared and excited about something, right? I'm a little excited about the new things that I don't know what they're going to be or how they're going to change. That's a little bit different than I know God is calling me to X and I don't want that. When I first got this job in Pittsburgh at this church, this call, I was not excited. I knew pretty concretely this is where I felt I should be by the time I was ready to take the job, but I didn't want to come here. Why? Because coming here was associated with leaving my family leaving my friends I've grown up with since I was like six years old, leaving my really tight-knit college community that I had built over four years, leaving all of that to come to this place. And I didn't want to do it, even though I felt it is one of the few times in my life I have felt clarity about God calling me somewhere. Short of an audible voice confirmation that I was supposed to be somewhere and I didn't want to. And I'm not trying to use this example to be like, so be like Mike and take the call. It's like, no, like it, it was not enjoyable is my point. And yet 
in hindsight, it's absolutely where I had to be. Currently, it's where I have to be. I know it in my bones. Often we resist these new challenges or these new things because as the old mantra goes, we prefer the devil we know to the devil we don't. And the scary thing is when we continue to wander because we think we already know best. And it's not just in our relationships, wandering around making something right, wandering around um, taking on new opportunities to lead, wandering around how you should shift your view of generosity, whether it's an emotional generosity or a, a financial generosity. We wander around all kinds of things. And the problem is like we begin to think we know how things should be. Uh, we run into this in church all the time. Here's how we've always done it. And that's what we should always do. It's like, well, sometimes God's calling us to a new thing. We go, we don't want that new thing. Well, that's where God's calling us. Well, we don't want to do it. We're going to wander around here for a while. It's like, well, at a certain point, churches die because they've refused to listen to where God is calling them forward. That's a tension that has to be explored. Now, the scary part of that is we don't necessarily always know where God's calling us. We wonder, and that's okay. Sometimes it's trial and error. Sometimes you don't really know what comes next, but you're trying to trust that God's going to make something of your efforts. As long as you are pursuing that presence with God as you make your choices, I think it's okay to mess up a few times along the way. I think God would rather us mess up in an act of faith rather than mess up in an act of stubbornness. Mess up because we're wondering what comes next as opposed to messing up because we're wandering around instead of faithfully moving forward. So again, a lot of this kind of just revolves back to just this, you know, this phrase that I see all the time, not all who wander are lost. And there were all kinds of different avenues I thought and angles um, I could take the sermon trying to push it. But in general, I see this theme in, as a really important one as the church is wrestling with COVID. Um, again, like many people think COVID's just over and maybe it's over for you and your family because you've decided you're going to approach it a certain way. But for most of the world, it's not over. For a lot of our country, it's not over. And I'm not talking about like death rates and things like that. Like people get bogged down on that. Um, and those are important things to talk about. I'm talking about the way our culture has changed because of COVID. Studies are already being done. Studies are coming out about people are not coming back to church. A really simplistic answer would be to say, well, it's because they've given up on God. They need to like get dedicated again. It's like, well, or turns out after a year plus of not being in church the same way that they used to, it, it turns out that they're not actually getting what they thought they needed. They're not actually getting their cups filled in the same way they thought they were. They, I think we often want to just point to like failure or sin as the culprits behind why things aren't going well in the church. But think about that. Like that is the easiest crutch to justify anything churches do ever. And if you disagree with it, it's because you're wrong, you're sinful, you're missing the point. Sure, it's probably both and. It's probably everyone's uh, issue to handle, but that's the point. We all need to handle the changes of this new world post and I guess whatever word would be like during um, COVID. 
this new shift in how we think about community, this new shift in how we think about working from home or virtual presences, um, uh, our new perspective on how we draw boundaries for our time. How does that impact our perception of God, our perception of community, our perception of relationships, our perception of church, of worship? These are the new places God might be calling us that we're not comfortable with because it's not the way we've always done it. It's not the way that I've done it for 10, 15, 20 plus years, 50 years, you know, like, and that's okay. But we have to realize it's not about what makes us comfortable. It's about where God's calling us. And there is wonder in that. But once you start to get some, some concrete examples of where God might be calling you, and if you don't like it, and your mechanism to defend against that is to wander and to put others down for exploring that next step, for trying to climb. Maybe they went the wrong route, but they're trying to climb. That's no good. So wandering and wandering, that, those are the big focuses of the sermon on Sunday, and uh, these are some extended thoughts about it. Again, this is just the first chapter of Deuteronomy. There was so much like Literally, I was able to choose from the whole book of Numbers and the whole book of Deuteronomy. There was so much I wanted to do. Um, and this is the hardest part of writing a sermon is just picking a text. And, and then even in a text, you can go about 100 different directions. Um, the book of Numbers, I think, has the uh, famous benediction that's often used. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Um, that's in numbers, I believe. And that's like a beautiful text that like, you know, my former pastor used, I think almost every week as his benediction after a sermon. And I, I really strive to use that often and to think about that as I go throughout my day, think about those words, the Lord bless you and keep you. What does it mean to be blessed and to be kept? You know what I mean? The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. What, is, what do you feel like in life when God's face is shining upon you? That's drawing upon language of uh, Moses and God's first interaction at the burning bush, right? But have you ever felt like you'd articulate in that poetic language that God's face is shining on you? How do you feel when God's being gracious to you? What does it mean for the Lord to lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace? Like, it's powerful language. It's language of blessing. That was something I was thinking about preaching on. Then in Deuteronomy, you've got the Shema. Um, if you don't know what the Shema is, it's the Hebrew word or verb for listen. Um, but the, the passage itself is hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel. The Lord your God is one. You'll love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Um and so uh, maybe you didn't know that that passage from the New Testament of, of Jesus saying, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's quoting the Shema. He's quoting Deuteronomy. It's very important. Um, people that say they want to like never read the Old Testament, they only need the, the New Testament. I got news for you. Jesus was Jewish. You got to do both there. It's all connected. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Law, capital L, is referring to the Torah as a whole, not just the 613 laws of the Old Testament. Law is fulfillment of Torah, because everything after Torah is reflecting on Torah. 
So when you say, okay, the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. What's the difference between loving God with your heart and your strength, with your mind and your soul? Those are important distinctions to make. And so uh, all that to say, that's that's not about my sermon on Sunday in particular, but just things that were juggled around my head as I was trying to think, how can I really do justice to Deuteronomy or numbers? And so I went with uh, Deuteronomy 1 uh, for a number of reasons. Huh, number. Pun intended. Uh, but yeah, so I hope this was nice. If you like this, I'm not fishing for compliments, but uh, let me know if you'd like to hear me do some kind of extended conversation about sermons or or passages like these, and uh, I'll try to work those into these conversations uh, with you all. Uh, with that being said, I am going to wrap this one up. So thanks for listening and see you for the next one.